Hey y'all, welcome to Brianna Approved, a podcast for people who like a holistic approach to real science and clinical research on all things nutrition, botanicals, and balance. I'm your host, Brianna DiOrio, clinical nutritionist, herbal practitioner, and recovering super spaz. Welcome back to the Brianna Approved podcast. Episode 16, we are talking the neuroscience of change. But before we get into the episode, I want to take a minute to let everybody know that I recently have launched a new updated version of my website, www.briannadiorio.com. Definitely go check it out. There's going to be a lot of new exciting content on there and Brianna approved products, ebooks, all the good stuff. And as always, please continue to tag, share, leave reviews for the podcast. It really helps get that out there so we can keep dropping knowledge. And now back to your regularly scheduled podcast episode. So in episode 16, I am going to discuss the neuroscience of change, or I should say why change is actually so difficult. And I discussed the differences between our reflexive and reflective functions of the brain, parts of the brain that deal with change and the science behind why old habits die hard. And then I touch a little bit on the threat reward system, which can kind of impact why we don't always see the big picture goals when we are working towards change. And then of course, how to go about actually changing. The nerd alert in this show will be parts of the brain that resist change, in particular the orbital frontal cortex, and then you will have a homework assignment, which will be working on intentional changes. If you want to be a visual learner, there's a full YouTube video of this recording as well, so feel free to go over to my YouTube page and check that out. But now it is your time for your fun fact of the day while I sip cafe. Did you know studies reveal that when heart disease patients who had undergone traumatic bypass surgery were told that if they did not adjust their lifestyle or they would die or at best have to undergo this life-saving procedure again, only 9% of participants modified their behavior. Now, this episode might be for some people who struggle with the idea of can people actually change? And this is something that I kind of go in and out of. And I think I have a lot as I've gotten older. And I have come to realize that people can modify, but changing ourselves is extremely arduous. And that's what I'm I'm hoping you all get from this episode is once you see how hard it is to actually change ourselves, you'll see how it's nearly impossible to think you're going to change somebody else especially if they're not 100% on board and actively working on doing it every single day because you'll see why people find it so hard to change even if they know it's good for them. There's neuroscience behind it. Our brains are kind of hardwired to not always run towards change because it requires you have to be active and you have to work at it. And unless there's really some kind of life-threatening situation, people will still even resist change despite knowing the repercussions. And so the core challenge a lot of the times when it deals with change is behavior. And our brains are extremely effective at maintaining status quo, keeping things as is. It's kind of lazy. It doesn't want to have to do more than it needs to do, right? Right. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't change because we do know about this whole field of neuroplasticity, right? And so our brains are continuously forming these new connections and uh, reconstructing themselves. And again, this process of neuroplasticity does happen thousands of times a day. And for those of you who don't know, neuroplasticity is basically the ability of the neural networks in our brain to change through growth and they can kind of reorganize. So think about the idea of like when a company gets bigger and they have to kind of restructure things internally. That's what our brains can do. And so, you know, neuroplasticity allows these neurons or our nerve cells in the brain to compensate if there's been disease, if there's been injury, if we're trying to learn a new language, if we're trying to actively make changes. And again, it adjusts, you know, these neurons in response to new situation or changes in the environment. So in order for neuroplasticity to occur, we do need to have some sort of some sort of change happening or moving the needle, if you will. And this is what brings us to the idea of reflexes versus reflective functions of the brain. And neuroscientists basically will divide the brain into two systems. So they call it the X system, which is known as the reflexive system, right? So think about a reflex that you have. If somebody goes to punch you, your reflex is to, to blink, right? And then we have our C system of the brain, which is our reflective functions. So this is when we actually take some time and pause and think back and maybe are not just going off a knee-jerk reaction. And so our X system, these X system functions, the reflexive, these are a bit more energy efficient. These are things that, again, react automatically. They happen kind of fast. And this is what deals with, you know, when we tune into our immediate goals. If we think about a past emotion really quickly, if we have a memory or a habit, a belief, and it kind of matches our perceptions with what's sort of sort of happening, you know, right now. Then we have the C system, which this takes a bit more energy to function and it processes information more slowly, right? If you think about the term reflective, you're reflecting on something. So this is kind of that one step at a time function of the brain. It governs, you know, higher order thinking. And the C system's job is to consciously reflect on and challenge and correct all the things that the X system or the reflexive system is doing, which again, some of those knee-jerk reactions. And this, I'm kind of giving you a backstory on this because I want to do a little brain recap. You'll hear people talk about the reptilian brain, the limbic brain, prefrontal cortex. So I do want to take a step back and talk about what those mean. When we talk about the reptilian brain, this is responsible for a lot of the things that we do from a, a our primary drivers, right? Like eating and sleeping and sex and, and all of that. That's the reptilian brain. Then we have our limbic brain. This deals with our emotions. It also deals with connecting with other people and our our habits. And then, you know, lastly, we have our prefrontal cortex, which this is what deals with higher order thinking. And the prefrontal cortex takes more energy to function, whereas the limbic brain is pretty energy efficient, right? So what that means is that it takes more effort to think about and do something new as opposed to just reacting out of instinct or habit, which is why old habits die hard sometimes. When push comes to shove, when we do get stressed, when the shit hits the fan, if you will, 
we go back into the limbic brain, not always the prefrontal cortex, which allows us to logically think and rationally think as opposed to just relying on our emotions. So when we're talking about parts of the brain that deals with habits, we'll talk about this in a second, but you know, a lot of what we do on a daily basis happens without us even thinking. We brush our teeth, you know, we're walking around the supermarket, you're on a call, whatever it is. You don't have to necessarily consciously decide what leg to put into your pants first. You kind of just do it, right? And so these simple behaviors, they've kind of been shaped by training and experience, and they've become habitual. You've been doing this since you're a kid. So habits, rituals, routine, all of this stuff, the part of the brain that deals with habits and routines and rituals is the basal ganglia. And now this is a part of the limbic X system, that reflexive structure. So it's low energy, it functions without a lot of effort, it's designed to allow basically the prefrontal cortex or that reflective C system to then process new information and more complex decisions. So your brain's like, listen, you got a lot of new things that you're juggling, like that's fine, we'll take care of the autopilot stuff, you don't have to think about that. So whenever we're acting or thinking in ways that we've done in the past, we're basically reinforcing neural connections in the basal ganglia. So changing a habit or embedding a new behavior takes a lot of effort and takes a lot of focused attention. And this can feel physiologically uncomfortable and painful and just not enjoyable to basically override these habits that your brain has been on autopilot doing for a really long time which makes sense and it's no wonder why people avoid changes or if they do make a change, this is why it's very, very hard to maintain that commitment to change. So when we are under pressure, when we're tired, when we're juggling 9,000 knives, the prefrontal cortex can't keep us focused and then we basically just relapse to our earlier behaviors and habits. So again, old habits die hard. If you're lucky, they they will die. They rarely die because of these patterns, because of the prefrontal cortex, the basal ganglia, all of that. Which brings us to our nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. So for today's section of nerd alert, we're going to talk about the parts of the brain that resist change. In particular, the orbital frontal cortex. So our basal ganglia, as we've been talking about, in our whole primitive brain, again, that deals with our wiring habits, right? This cluster of nerve cells is involved in in things that are automatic, part of that routine behavior, things that we're familiar with, things that make us feel good. Maybe they're not always good for us, but they make us feel good because this is how the brain has been wired. So things that we do the same routine of every day without having to make changes to it, smoking cigarettes, um, biting our nails, right? Um, Even habits like exercise, so these can form when, that when we repeatedly have a certain behavior in a specific environment or a context. This is why it's also really important to change your environment if you are really looking to make lasting changes. So maybe that doesn't necessarily mean you have to move to another state, but maybe you're not hanging out with people who have the same kind of cueing system that will elicit positive changes. So... For instance, when we do something like put a seatbelt on, which is an action, when we get into a car, 
which is a contextual clue. Okay, every time I'm in the car, I have this action that I do. I don't even think about it, right? We develop these things automatically, our automatic behavior in response to a contextual clue. So some of this automatic cueing can be unintentional, deliberately cueing ourselves kind of to help us engage in particular habits. So again, something like leaving your shoes by the door for the gym in the morning. If I see that, that's going to make me want to go work out in the morning. But on the flip side of that, if we have, again, a contextual clue, an action every time I see this person, every time I go here, every time I hear this song, whatever it is, every time I eat this food, that puts us back into a maybe not so great habit. So those are things that you need to assess at well. And again, you know, we can consciously control certain things like working out again, because that's a part of the brain that deals with the neocortex. So that's our, you know, conscious decision making brain. But our conscious actions require a lot of effort. And so when we're talking about the orbital frontal cortex or the part of the brain that resists with with change, this kind of comes from your brain's intent to need you to stay alive. So survival is another function of the brain that can predispose us to resisting change, right? So survival depends basically on our ability to see if there's something that's weird in our environment and makes us react quickly and this instinctual behavior that makes us avoid threat. So when our brain perceives this difference between what we expect and what's actually occurring, so again, maybe there was a pattern that we always had or we always responded a certain way, and that's kind of what our default system is, but then something new is happening, we have this rapid fire signal that's produced. And this error detection mechanism is located in the orbital frontal cortex, which is basically, you know, just above the eyes. And it's closely connected to the amygdala. Again, one of the oldest parts of the brain that deals with emotions. So if we have damaged the orbital frontal cortex, this can actually change the way the body responds to emotions, which can contribute to poor decision making and maybe making us more impulsive because, again, the orbital frontal cortex is associated with certain types of decision making. The amygdala will draw energy away from the prefrontal cortex, right, which, again, is part of that reflective part of the brain, which, again, activates surge of anger and fear to help us kind of, you know, get away from what's not good. So, like, imagine you were walking in a safari and your orbital cortex notices that, a bush is moving and you're like, what? What is that? Am I gonna am I gonna die right now? That immediately triggers your amygdala, that emotional part of the brain. You go into high alert, adrenaline gets pumped through your body, and your brain wants you to pick up on these things. It wants you to pay attention, to notice potentially dangerous changes in your environment. So you don't become whatever, you know, the dinner of a lion that's been lurking in, in the side of the jungle. You also want your brain and body to be able to shift back to this homeostatic state, normal, once the danger has passed. Again, because we do know that long-term stress can be damaging to certain parts of the brain. So that is when the brain's tendency towards homeostasis kicks in. We look for ways to create certainty. And that's not always a healthy way, right? We're kind of just recreating some of these neural pathways. And so A lot of the times when we're talking about homeostasis, this is the idea of moving towards 
equilibrium and away from change, right? Because that's not always normal for our body. So our body's resistance to change is actually an important mechanism for maintaining homeostasis. So, you know, again, homeostasis is kind of like a thermostat that you have uh, in your apartment if it gets too hot or too cold. So this is why if we're trying to fix a behavior, we can kind of go back to what's familiar as soon as possible because our body doesn't want to always be on high alert. It doesn't want to be hypervigilant all the time, which brings us to the threat reward system of the brain. When change is happening around us, whether that's change in a relationship, change in a job, um, change in your economics, you got in a fight with a friend, you went through a breakup, you're getting engaged, you're getting married, whatever it is, good change, bad change, change is change, stress is stress. We can feel threatened. And one way to understand this is by looking at the brain's threat reward system. The motivation behind a lot of our behaviors and why we act the way we do when push comes to shove, when there's changes happening in our world, is because this is driven by our desire to minimize threat and maximize reward. You don't have to be a neuroscience neuroscientist to understand that doing more of what makes us feel good and less of what makes us feel bad seems like the right thing to do. And so neuroscientists will call this principle walking towards and running away theory. So when we feel threatened, whether that's you're in a fight with your significant other, you have a work presentation that makes you nervous, um, we Basically, we'll try and avoid that then as opposed to embracing it. And when we feel uncertain, we actually kind of focus on this, the negative side of things. Again, because our prefrontal cortex, the part of that C system, that reflective system, has less energy. It's got less oxygen, less glucose. So we're less likely to make good decisions or take on new ideas or appreciate big picture thinking when we are in this kind of transitional phase or whatever is going on. However, the good news is the opposite happens when the reward system is activated. You have a presentation that goes really well. You call your dad and he's like, man, that was awesome. Great job. I'm really proud of you. You get a PR at the gym and you have your buddies there and they like let you write it on the board and you immediately feel good, right? We want to make the most of these positive emotions and experiences um, because our brains will release dopamine and we feel better and then we're therefore likely to repeat that behavior, positive reinforcement, a domino effect, gaining positive momentum, which again is why it is so important to really do an audit on your life of people, energy, vibes, environments, whatever it is, all these things that are going to be cues and actions and things that can trigger you in a sense to actually put you in a favorable position to make lasting and maintainable changes when we're working uphill against our neuroscience. And so to finish off the show, I want to leave everybody with a homework assignment for the week, which is working on intentional change. Because again, we can change these things. It just takes work. It takes consistency. And it takes a bit of honesty as well, because the process of intentionally changing our brain circuits is something called self-directed neuroplasticity. So it's not enough to just practice this every so often. We need to pay attention repeatedly to new actions and to new insights over a period of time until basically it becomes like second nature, right? Like we don't think about brushing our teeth in the morning. We have to have consistent effort. And so this is why I tell people like there is a consequence to every decision that you make in your life. 
So you make choices and every choice you make makes consequences. So when you're making that choice consciously, you are creating your future consciously. And so this can be a choice about the people you choose to stay in your life, the activities you choose to engage in, the books you read, the conversations you have with yourself, the media you consume, the the shows that you watch, whatever it is, everything you do, you make choices and every choice you make makes a consequence. So you are creating your future consciously and actually helping to form good or bad habits. So this is where working on intentions and intentionally changing is important. Intention deals with this cause and effect. If I say to myself, I intend to wake up every day at 5 a.m., that's my intention. What's that going to cause? That's going to cause me to get to my back to my desk by 7 a.m. Well, what's going to be the effect of that? The effect will be getting a jump start on my workday, right? So the intention will ultimately determine the outcome of the effect. And it's important to understand that this is a process and not a one-time event. So this is important when we're talking about the big picture idea of changing and why this takes time and how we have to learn and create new habits, much like we have to also undo and unlearn certain habits that no longer serve us and that are no longer aligned with whatever it is our most authentic self wants and what we're trying to work towards. So when we're focusing on actually changing, there are three areas that we can kind of bring more attention to, to leverage our brain's capacity to, you know, reshape habits again that either are for the better or that no longer serve us. Um, and to make more desirable behaviors and attitudes. So number one, willpower, right? Which can be a limited resource. That's not going to always last. Uh, focused attention, which is something we have a bit more control over. And mindful action. So consciously deciding what we will allow, what we won't allow, when we'll start a new habit, when we'll set our alarm, when we're going to plan our day out, whatever it is. So willpower, focused attention, mindful action can be used to push through resistance and rewire some of these habitual patterns. And creating rituals to kind of embed some of these new behaviors is really the key here. We have to reinforce positive changes with support immediate feedback from others. This can be a buddy. You don't have to spend $5,000 on a business coach or a life coach, right? You can call your dad and be like, I just finished my class. And he'll be like, wow, I'm so proud of you. And you feel good, right? Positive reinforcement. So we want to tap into our reward system that is associated with new behaviors. Every time I go to the gym five days in a row, I'm going to get myself a coffee, right? Positive emotions when we're doing these things. It it really is helpful if we find ways to make changes of our new habits that are interesting and fun, but also when we associate some of those positive emotions with it, that limbic brain, so that the prefrontal cortex can kind of have more room to be a bit more logical when new unfamiliar things happen and it can assess like, ooh, what's going on? How do I normally respond? I need some distance and space with this. So you know, the more we practice these skills, the more we allow these neurons to connect through neuroplasticity, it's gonna, it's going to have this sort of domino effect. And it's, it's a lot like skiing down a new trail or skiing moguls. Um, and for those of you who don't know, moguls are like these bumps that you find on certain ski areas, which are basically constructed by the skiers, right? They are what's carving these moguls uh, into the mountain. And so if I ski down that same trail every day, it's actually going to get easier and the moguls are going to get a little bit deeper for me the next time I go on it. And our neurons kind of work in the same way. The more we drive 
down one particular path, the more we go down a certain path, we keep going down the same mogul, we keep building these same habits, it becomes easier. And so whether this path is effective, something like gratitude or mindfulness, or ineffective, like every time somebody does something, I get really angry and yell, either way, you're embedding that path, you're embedding that mogul. So it does take effort initially to choose to ski down a new path. And it is unknown landscape. So that means there might be rough patches. It might feel uncomfortable. You might have to go really slow. You might have to really concentrate. And especially when you're under pressure, but with that consistent effort, you can create these these new paths and, um, you know, again, allows our neurons to fire together and embed these habits in our basal ganglia, which again, things like cleaning our teeth and you know, putting our seatbelts on, right? All of this happens with less effort. Our prefrontal cortex can maintain focus and attention so we can regulate our emotions and, you know, perform more effectively. And again, this takes time. You have to be patient with yourself. Uh, Meet yourself where you are and be realistic about that as well. And if you're looking for some more information on this as well, uh, there is a neuroscientist named Sue Langley who specializes in emotional intelligence and positive psychology, uh, which is where I got a lot of my research for this show. So definitely feel free to check that out. But, you know, I hope everybody picks one or two things that they want to consciously, you know, work on changing, be intentional about it, um, which it doesn't always have to be something that's health related, like I have to lose five pounds. It can be, again, people, environments, triggers, cues, things that are just not conducive for making these changes easier because change is hard enough on a good day. So you want to at least set yourself up for the right environment. If you're trying to, let's say, go on a diet and all you have in your house is junk food, it's going to make it a, a bit more of an uphill battle, right? So set yourself up for success where you can and understand what your triggers are, understand where you're still participating, and you know, be kind with yourself and patient with yourself along the way. So I hope you all enjoyed this episode, and I'll see y'all next week. Check out the full YouTube video. Ciao. Ba-da-da-da-da-da-do. <laughs>